Welcome to Bizarre to Brutal, featuring true crimes and scandals that were reported in the hugely popular Victorian newspaper, The Illustrated Police News. What follows are the actual reports from that time. But first, a warning. The writers sometimes didn't hold back from giving the most intimate details of these events. But if you can stand it, you'll get a revealing insight into Victorian life and uncensored human nature. So let's walk back through the mists of time. Fifteenth of April, eighteen seventy one. Extraordinary effect of a dream. Richard Ball and Samuel Savage, respectably dressed young men residing in Globe Lane, Woolwich, were charged at Greenwich Police Court before Mr. Maud under the following circumstances. Mr. G. F. Gordon of the Crown and Scepter, Greenwich, said that shortly after seven o'clock on Sunday evening, he was informed by a neighbour that two men had entered an unoccupied house adjoining his premises, and, on going there, he found Ball holding a door which he had forced open and which led to a cellar in his, Mr Gordon's, occupation, in which were deposited various articles of value. The prisoner Savage left the house at this time, and as Ball refused to give any account of himself at first, he had both prisoners detained and gave them into custody. In answer to the charge, the prisoner Ball made an extraordinary defence. He said that the house he and Savage were charged with entering for an unlawful purpose was many years ago occupied by his grandfather, who carried on the business of a tallow chandler and who had, he believed, bought the house of the former proprietor of the Crown and Scepter, the late Mr Thomas Quatermain. His father and grandfather had lived in the house together and on his father dying he remembered he said... Look under the stairs, where you will find a lot of money. For several nights past, he had had a dream in which an apparition had appeared, pointing with the hand and saying thrice, Under the stairs. Thinking this most extraordinary, and that it had reference to the former remark of his father, and that the money was to be found under the stairs of the house in question, he resolved, if finding the door fastening on the latch, to enter the house and make an examination. He asked Savage to accompany him, and he did so, and they walked from Woolwich for that purpose. The door fastening was found upon the latch, and they entered, when Mr Gordon came and gave him and Savage into custody. Police Constable Warden 244R produced a portion of a candle and a box of lucifers found upon Ball, who, he said, refused all information regarding himself, and which information was only obtained from the other prisoner. Ball replied that he had provided himself with the candle and lucifers to enable him to look for the money under the stairs. But on looking, he found there were no stairs, or that they had been removed laughter in the court. 
The reason why he gave no account of himself was that he was bewildered and did not think he could be locked up for going into an unoccupied house which he believed to have been bought by his grandfather and in which he still believed there was money secreted. More laughter in the court. Mr Gordon said that the statement made by Ball respecting his grandfather and father formerly occupying the house was perfectly true. And if he, Ball, had come to him and asked permission to enter and make a search, he would have allowed him to do so. Mr Maud was satisfied with the explanation thus tendered and the prisoners were set at liberty. Thirtieth of September, eighteen seventy one, an affair of honour at Twickenham. Mr. Christopher Lloyd Pope, a gentleman residing at Twickenham, was charged before the Brentford magistrates with willfully and without any lawful excuse ringing the doorbell of Dr. Starr of Richmond Road, Twickenham, and with using threats towards Lieutenant Starr calculated to provoke a breach of the peace at a late hour on Tuesday night. Lieutenant G.L. Starr, a half-pay officer residing with his father at number 3 Yelverton Villas, Richmond Road, Twickenham, said just before 12 o'clock on Tuesday night he was awoke by a loud ringing at the street door bell. Dr. Starr, thinking he was wanted professionally, answered the door when prisoner who was at the gate, called out in a loud voice. Star! Star! Come out and have your head punched, you coward! Dr Star, hearing who it was, ordered prisoner away. He left, but returned shortly afterwards, and again rang the bell violently, called witness offensive names, and told him to come out and have his head punched, as he was a coward. As prisoner would not go away, Dr Starr called a policeman and gave prisoner into custody. Prisoner, in his defence, said one reason why he went to prosecutor's house was because when he was out with a lady a day or two previously, Lieutenant Starr insulted him. He admitted that he called him a coward and said he did so because he knew a British officer dare not allow himself to be called a coward without defending his honour. The other reason why he went to the house was because Dr Starr had promised to meet him in the billiard room and had not kept his promise. The chairman said there was no doubt prisoner was guilty of the charge and that he went to the house of Dr Starr with a hostile intention. They could not allow the peace to be disturbed in this way and they should order him to pay a fine of 40 shillings for ringing the bell and be bound over in a bond of £40 to keep the peace for six months. Prisoner complained of being locked up in the police cell and asked if there was any appeal. The chairman said there was no appeal and that if he was brought before them for a similar offence, he would be sent to prison without the option of paying a fine. The money was at once paid. Thank you.
27th of January, 1872. Killed in a fight. John Willoughby, a shoemaker, Ratcliffe, was brought before Mr Lushington at the Thames Police Court on remand, charged with killing James Knight, a navvy. The deceased and the prisoner were the worst for liquor on Saturday, the 14th of the present month, and began a quarrel, which eventuated in a fight. The deceased, who was the more powerful man, had the best of the fight, and the prisoner was generally underneath him when they fell. After fighting a considerable time, they were parted, and the deceased and the prisoner went home. The deceased went to bed and complained of great pain in the stomach. In the middle of the night, his wife noticed her husband very cold, and on looking round, found that he was dead. The wife of the deceased seemed to attach no blame to the prisoner, and said it was a fair stand-up fight, and that her husband first struck the prisoner in the face with his fist, and in fact, she urged her husband on to fight the prisoner. Mr George Priddle, surgeon of Heath Place, Commercial Road, said that he had made a post-mortem examination of the deceased. He had never seen so much blood before in a person's head. The external marks on the deceased's body would not have produced his death, and he believed that the death of the man was caused by an effusion of blood upon the brain. He must have died immediately at the time of the effusion of blood upon the brain, and certainly would not be able to walk. Drink might have accelerated the death of the deceased, but previously he must have broken one of the blood vessels of the brain, thereby causing the effusion and producing death. Mr Lushington said it was clear a fight took place between the prisoner and the deceased, and that the unfortunate deceased was the aggressor and began the fight. The evidence of the doctor did not tend to show that the deceased met with his death by any blow of the prisoners. He did not think there was any evidence against the prisoner to send him before a jury and discharged him. Ninth of March, 1872. The attack on Her Majesty the Queen. We have to record the particulars of an extraordinary outrage upon the Queen, attempted on Thursday evening as Her Majesty was returning to Buckingham Palace from a drive taken to relieve her after the fatigue of court day. The prisoner's name is Arthur O'Connor, and he states he is a grandson of the late Fergus O'Connor the great chartist. He is only between 17 and 18 years of age and was dressed as an artisan. He lived with his parents at number 4 Church Row, Houndsditch, a squalid court on the north side of Oldgate. His father is engaged on one of the steamboat piers and is a respectable man with seven children, the eldest of whom is the prisoner. The father is a native of Ireland, but all his children were born in England, and all the family are Protestants. The prisoner is spoken of as of a mild, peaceful, and indeed rather timid and pensive disposition. He was engaged as copying clerk at Messrs. Franks, oilmen, 
and was at work on Monday when nothing peculiar was noticed in his conduct. The office was closed on Tuesday and he did not return to work after Monday evening. At work, he seemed willing, assiduous and regular. They expected him home on tea on Thursday and instead they received a visit from a police inspector who found a mass of pernicious juvenile literature of the halfpenny dreadful type on the top of the school books belonging to the prisoner who went to a night class. It appears that in order to get near Her Majesty, the prisoner scaled a railing ten foot high, first divesting himself of his jacket, which the police afterwards found. The attendants, thinking he was one of the gardeners, said nothing to him. When the carriage reached the entrance to the palace, the prisoner suddenly sprang to the side of it and uttered some incoherent words to Lady Churchill. Afterwards, finding his mistake, he ran round to the other side of the carriage on which the Queen sat and presented the pistol at her. Her Majesty, who did not quail, leaned back within the carriage and as she did so, heard the ominous click of the pistol which, however, did not go off. In fact, it was not loaded. The next instant, the lad was powerless. According to one account, Prince Arthur sprang upon him, threw him down and disarmed him. Another report says that he was grappled with by Major General Harding and Lord Fitzroy, the equerries. But the court circular, which we believe is revised by Her Majesty gives the following brief and, no doubt, accurate report of the affair. The Queen experienced an alarm in returning from her drive on Thursday afternoon. On arriving at Buckingham Palace at about half-past five o'clock, Her Majesty's carriage drove up to the garden entrance of the palace, and as the Queen was about to get out, a youth, who had managed unobserved to get into the garden, rushed up and presented a pistol at Her Majesty. He was immediately seized by the Queen's personal attendant, Brown, and given in charge to the King Street station. The pistol on examination appeared to be unloaded and broken. Her Majesty showed very little sign of fear, and it is to be hoped will not suffer from the shock. The weapon is described as an ancient horse pistol, an exceedingly harmless weapon, being an old flint firearm some seven inches in length, rusty and badly put together. The flint was not fixed in its proper place, but was in the pocket of the prisoner at the time he was apprehended, and was, in fact, produced by him when he was taken into custody. It is very questionable whether the pistol would have gone off, even had it been loaded, as the touch hole was full of dirt, and the hammer out of order. It was not loaded, and in the opinion of Lord Charles Fitzroy, it would not have exploded with any amount of a charge. When apprehended, the prisoner was asked if the pistol was loaded, and he replied, If it is, I did not. It is broken, and I bought it last Saturday for six shillings. I have been away on pretense of being ill, but I really am ill.
You've been listening to Bizarre to Brutal. I'm Mark Capel. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, climb into your handsome cab and head over to bizarretobrutal.com to find out more. See you next time.